your job interview, don't be afraid to seem enthusiastic that the hot tamale to me is far more likely to hire, be hired than someone who's cool as a cucumber. Sit on the edge of your seat. Don't be afraid to express your enthusiasm for the place. You can look around and say, wow, what a great work environment this seems to be. And at the end, ask for the job. Hello, and welcome back to I Want Her Job, the podcast. So as editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine for 14 years, Kate White led the magazine straight to the top. Today, she's the best-selling author of career and suspense books. So how did she do it? In today's show, Kate shares how her gutsy instincts, risk-taking, rule-breaking, love of data, and strong business skills were her secret sauce to success. And if you want to take Kate's advice to the next level, we highly recommend you pick up her latest book, The Gutsy Girl Handbook, with advice and practical tactics to negotiate your salary, manage your time, learn from failure, reduce your worrying, shed the good girl instinct, and more. We are so thrilled to start the conversation and share Kate's thoughts on many of these topics all in this show. So keep listening to hear Kate's advice on how you can become better, bigger, bolder, and more badass in everything you do. Before we start today's podcast, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Best Western. Attention business travelers, did you know Best Western Rewards has some of the lowest free night levels in the industry? Go get rewarded at more than 4,100 locations around the world by visiting bestwesternrewards.com. Here is Kate White telling us about her jobs. Right now, I have a kind of crazy bifurcated brand that I don't necessarily recommend for everyone, but it works for me. I write murder mysteries and thrillers. I'm a New York Times bestselling author of a dozen of them, but I'm also a career expert and author, and I speak around the country on success and leadership. So what does one have to do with the other? Not much, but it's a nice mix for me. Yes, I love that. And before we get into the Gutsy Girl Handbook, can we talk a little about your 14 years as editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine? Um, looking back, I'd just love to hear what accomplishments you think about the most and what give you you know, the accomplishments that you remember and feel great, great about. Running Cosmo for 14 years was one of the most delicious experiences I've absolutely ever had. It was so much fun. It really felt like being in a television show a lot of the time. I mean, I ended up having dinner with people like Beyonce and Bill Clinton and Bon Jovi and just meeting some fabulous people. I took the magazine to number one on the newsstand and kept it there for for the rest of my tenure. So that was a really big accomplishment. At the time, it was far and away the most profitable magazine in my company and one of the, if not the top magazine brands in the world. We were in about 65 markets by the time I left. And I couldn't have asked for more. I think one of my biggest accomplishments, besides just making the company a ton of money, was the Practice Safe Sun campaign, where we had a huge effort to alert women to the dangers of tanning beds and the rise in melanoma. And uh, But that was just one of so many pleasures and joys of that job. But as much as I loved it, I wanted to be able to leave when I still 
had the chance and have a more entrepreneurial lifestyle. It definitely sounds like a dream job. And I'm, I'm curious, looking back, would you be able to kind of try to define what skills, mindset, or characteristic allowed you to be so great in that role? I think there were a couple things that really helped me with the role. One, it was a really great fit for me. I had run several other magazines, including Redbook, a business magazine for women, a parenting magazine. And there was something about those magazines that was very buttoned up. And Cosmo, as we know, is not buttoned up at all. And I guess I've always had this really zany side to me. So as soon as I got there, and I, I didn't apply for the job. My company just called me up one Sunday, told me to come into the office and said, you're the new editor of Cosmo. But it was a really good fit for me. And so I, I always try to encourage people to think about the ecosystem that's going to work for you. And if you are in a ecosystem that tamps down your skills or part of your personality, you may never feel as great as I ended up feeling at Cosmo. And I might not have ever felt that way if I wasn't tapped for it. I didn't realize how wrong the other places were for me. I also think I'm a big rule breaker. Uh, and that that was helpful because Cosmos an over the top place, and I'm a great idea generator. I'm I'm really a big believer in asking what if and playing with that idea. There's something I talk about in the book called the four B's, where I would look at any idea and go, you know, could it be better, bigger, bolder, or more badass, and just keep trying to blow it out with your ideas and, and do far more than you're supposed to do. Yeah, great advice. And for women right now who are interested in, you know, magazines or online or print, what advice would you have to share on skills to focus on, trends in the industry, or ways to get in? That's such a good question, Pauline, because the magazine business is really suffering right now. And yet I still meet wonderful young women when I'm talking at a college who want to go into magazines, and they need print. But my best advice there is don't do it. It is, it's going downhill fast. I mean, just to give you an idea, I heard the other day that the latest issue of Glamour magazine where they had brought in someone who'd never worked in magazines before to run it and to, she had a digital background. I heard the latest issue, and this is just an estimate, sold 25,000 copies around the United States on newsstands. That number, I mean, just picture divided by 50 states. Wow. That's incredibly low. And that gives you a glimpse of what's happening in the magazine business. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a content creator. But if you love content, think about just making that your skill. And you could work for a fabulous website. Of course, right now they don't offer the kind of glamour and perks that the magazine business did. But but that may catch up in time. Uh, and a, a lot of the people who work for me have since gone into digital. Some of them have gone into creating content for brands. And that's, that's a really uh, a great opportunity, too. To me, it doesn't have the same thing of being a magazine editor where – you're, you're a journalist, and your, your judgment is based on weighing a bunch of different things. But still, it's still content creating, and there's plenty of that. But think twice about 
print magazines. Great advice. And so tell us the story of when you decided to start writing books. I mean, so 12 murder mysteries and thrillers. Um, <laughs> is that a genre that always interested you? Was it hard to make the transition to writing books? Well, you're, you're asking such good questions. Well, when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know then that you sort of have to pick a lane at some point in your career. Like I thought, I want to write books. I want to write for magazines. I want to write for newspapers. And there was no internet back when I was growing up in a galaxy far, far away. And so I just thought, I'm going to do all these things. And only once I got into college and at that point, really began looking at the magazine business. Did I see that you have to narrow it down? So I won a contest when I was in college called the Glamour Magazine Top Ten College Woman Contest, which was fantastic, and it kind of picked my lane for me. But I always had this idea of maybe one day I would try to write books. And I also advise people to not just manage their jobs, but manage their careers and how important it is to take time every week to sort of step back and think about your career. How's it going? Are you happy? Is there something that you put on the back burner that you want to get to a front burner? And that's kind of what happened to me one day. I began to realize I didn't want to let go of the idea of writing books. I did write my first nonfiction book that was a bestseller 23 years ago. It was called Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead But Gutsy Girls Do. But I still wanted to write fiction. So I tried to make a stab at a murder mystery. And I'd gotten four chapters in when I got called in for that Cosmo job and told, you're the new editor of Cosmo. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to put that on hold. But over the Christmas holidays that year, I dug it out from a drawer, those four chapters, and I discovered something I hadn't remembered, that the nanny who died had been found in the copy of Cosmo. So oh. I took it as a sign that, uh, darn, I was going to go back to doing it. So I got up early, Saturday and Sunday mornings, and during the week, I'd be, take my kids to school and then beat my staff in. And I just would try to write a few pages every day, and eventually those pages added up to a book. And then I wrote a bunch more, and then finally I had a foundation to leave my job with. And I guess in those days it was called Plan B, because partly I did it thinking if I get fired, I can save my ass by having this other career. Of course, now, as you know, we call that the side hustle. Mm -hmm. Um, that's amazing. So it sounds like it's something that kind of come naturally to you. Is that fair to say, the writing, the books? Yes, because I, I always loved Nancy Drew, as I'm sure a lot of people listening did, at least, at least the females. And I, I loved anything to do with forensics or crime. I, I read a lot of that stuff. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit I had a fascination with people like Ted Bundy and my daughter does now too so we get to talk a lot about that and just enjoy swapping information and so I knew I wanted to write a book and I wanted to try a novel and I just thought it would be better to try something that was I had an, a, an affiliation with that I didn't think I could write literary fiction. I'm just not that good of a writer, but I thought I'm pretty good at writing mysteries. Yeah. 
Well, I, I let's talk about the Gutsy Girl Handbook because I absolutely loved it. And as I was telling you, I read a lot of these business books that you get to the end of it and you don't learn anything new, but yours is really a handbook. I have so much underlined. And I think it's because, you, you know, like you do have this just incredible business background. So um, can you tell us about the good girl instinct? Because when I was reading it, I felt myself cringe knowing that I have some of those. <laughs> don't beat yourself up about it because even still now, I feel that that good girl gland, it, it never fully goes away. The reason I wrote the book was because 23 years ago, I wrote this other book, Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead. And the last paragraph in the book was, I know that when my daughter's in her 20s, this book will be obsolete. Hmm. But I realized it wasn't that younger women today still have a good girl instinct ruling them at times. And and I think it's today it's a little bit different than it was for baby boomers. Baby boomers actually sometimes believe that being a goody two-shoes paid off for you, hmm. that good girls got to got ahead in the end. I think today a lot of young women know that it's important to ask, it's important to speak up, but because it makes them nervous, they sometimes flinch and don't do it, or they'll talk themselves out of it. If it's they're, they're up for a new job and they offer the salary, a, a, a woman might say, God, I'd like more, but I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to start off on the wrong foot. So they, they talk themselves out of doing it. So I just felt there was still a place for this book and this information. And the publisher had this idea around the same time I did. So we came together and talked about it. And I feel that the strategies really make sense. They're based on everything I've learned in my career, but also lots of research and other successful women that I've known and interviewed over time. And so many women, just like you said, there are moments where you feel, shoot, I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't raise my hand. I, I, I held back. And that's a very natural thing to do sometimes, but it's great if you can fight it, understand why it's happening, and basically kick it to the curb. Absolutely. Like you, you mentioned several times in the book about waiting, you know, to be told what to do over worrying, overthinking. Um, and I just think this is such an important book right now. Tell us how you would define the gutsy girl. For me, a gutsy girl is someone who in a nutshell goes for it, who knows that she has to raise her hand for opportunities rather than wait for them to be handed to her. That she should grab that seat at the table, even though her first instinct may be to think it belongs to somebody who hasn't yet shown up. It's asking for money and not talking yourself out of it because you think they're going to think you're too bossy by doing it. It's just having the guts to always go for it and not talk yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, you mentioned to stop waiting to be told what to do, asking for directions. And how do you mentor people? or How did you do in the past to get them past this tendency? That was tricky because what I would find often is just some really dynamite, talented women on my staff would do exactly what they were told to do, but never take it any farther. I'll give you an example. 
When I was at Cosmo, I would say the bulk of the columns we did in the magazine were columns that I came up with. And a lot of the ways I came up with those ideas was to always sort of be on the lookout for the new. And I use data often to guide me to do that. So, for instance, one of the things I began to notice over time was that whenever we would do any kind of article on, let's say, male behavior, anytime we did a little sidebar on, let's say, male body language or trying to understand how men communicate. It rated so high. It sometimes would rate higher than the, the main article. Hmm. So I began to do more and more in the magazine that looked at what made men tick. And that stuff just exploded, and it helped drive the circulation of the magazine, women accepted that men were different than them. I think it was a period, maybe 10 years before, where we almost thought, hey, if I give guys enough white wine, they'll become more like me. And <laughs> that's never going to happen. You could give them all the Chardonnay in the world, and they're never going to chat more and do some of the things you want. That's why they invented girlfriends for, for that. So your girlfriends could do that for you. But uh, so... I began to see that our reader really wanted to know how to understand men and what made them tick. So I began doing more of those articles. But I based it on studying the ratings and really sort of seeing how readers responded. And what I started doing was telling my staff I wanted them to pitch ideas with a little ratings report in their possession. So that they would be looking at ratings, too, and seeing trends emerging. And so that they would, instead of giving the same old ideas, would be looking at data and, and hearing whispers and seeing clues for emerging trends. And that was one way I tried to get them to think out of the box. Because they would get locked in too often to doing things the way they've always been done before. That is such great, great leadership style. Um, and did it work? Yes, probably not as much as I would have liked. But there, what you find is there are only so many people on your staff who are going to be those great idea people, mm-hmm. who are going to take the bull by the horns and run with it. In fact, uh, this week over for lunch was a guy who worked for me. And we're still very close friends. And he came over to my house for lunch. And he was just brilliant at ideas. And he was one of those people who did it. But not everybody's going to do it. And you just have to try to encourage the the people who are C-level to get up to B-minus at least. And the people who are A-minus, you can really guide them to be, to be stars. One of the things I... I felt so good about there's a woman named Jessica Knoll who wrote a book called Lucky's Girl Live. It was, it was fiction and she has a new book out now now called the, the favorite sister. Her first novel sold 1 million copies. And in her acknowledgments, she said, and to Kate White, thank you for teaching me to go big or go home. And her point was, 
I wrote her, her, she wrote her first novel to have such a bold, compelling out there plot. And her point that she said to me is part of it was saying, don't just do good enough. Ask yourself, could it be bigger? Could it be bolder? Could it be more badass? And I think we need to do that with everything we're working on. For sure. Like I have this notebook I carry around with me and I've added those lines just to look at it, you know, once a week and ask myself those questions. Um, and you know, I find that helps me with my mysteries too, that to step back and say, really, did you go as far as you could with this? Are you doing it the same old way? Yes. Um, and then I, as I was reading your book, you, you mentioned the rule about how you didn't meet celebrities before you considered them for the covers. And I loved <laughs> How self-aware and disciplined you were. Can you tell us about this rule? Well, uh, I really did enjoy meeting some celebs in my job. It was fun. You, you know, I've had lunch with Kim Kardashian and dinner with Rihanna and just endless amounts of celebrities. But I, again, this goes back to studying data. I began after a lot of study of covers and why they sold and that it's a really difficult job because there's no science to it you just have to learn the formula that works for you your magazine and what I began to discover was that the cover girls who sold the best were the ones who weren't necessarily they didn't have the most album sales, they didn't have the most, uh, the, the movie hadn't been number one necessarily, the pictures of their naked ass, as I said in the book, hadn't broken the internet, <laughs> but Kim Kardashian did well for me. It all had to do with curiosity. How curious was our reader at a given time about that woman? And so I would have to try to just get a sense of that. Because eventually, with a lot of celebrities, there's a fatigue factor. We know everything there is to know about her. And so I would do it just listening to my gut in some ways about how curious do I think our reader is about her. Is there too much known? Or the flip side is, is she not known enough so I'm not curious about her? Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't meet women in advance is because that didn't answer that question for me. And the one time I made the mistake of meeting someone in advance who I just thought, you know, she was really lobbying, I could tell for cover, and went out to lunch, and she was so charming and, and beautiful and fun. I overrode my criteria and put her on the cover, and it didn't sell very well because our reader wasn't curious about her. So I think, again, you, you, you use data. I'm a big believer in looking failure in the face, that we hear a lot today about, oh, don't let failure eat you up, put it behind you. I just had a situation the other day, this young woman I know, she had gotten fired, and her parents were all about, oh, those jerks, they didn't know what they were doing. And so she's never going to learn from that experience. You have to look at failure and see without 
ruminating too much or wallowing in it. What can you learn? And what I learned studying the covers that failed was the common denominator often, besides maybe the wrong outfit or cover lines that were too general, was the fact that the reader wasn't curious enough about that woman. So the way I developed the winning formula was by really studying the past duds. Fascinating. So you, you took out your bias because you kind of knew what, you know, that the data would show you. And that reminds me how you talk in the book about how in an interview, people decide within about 30 seconds, right? If, if they're going to hire you or not. And um, yeah, well, the, uh, we actually did a study when I was at Cosmo because I was always intrigued with this and I'd heard it. So we signed up with the Society of Human Resource Managers to do a study. And we found that the decision not to hire is often made within the five to, first five to ten, 15 minutes. And people form an impression of you often within 30 seconds. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to hire you, but they've already decided, oh, you know what? She's not going to fit in here. And sometimes it could be bias, but often it might be based on how we're dressed or our energy level at the moment. One of the big factors in hiring people is enthusiasm. And uh, I saw a study that said that interviewers were asked what was the most common reason they passed on a candidate, and it had to do with lack of enthusiasm enthusiasm on the person's part and this great guy who used to work for my company he hired all the major talent I mean not, he didn't hire them but he interviewed them and he passed recommendations to us he said the people who were really dazzling dazzling always sat and I mentioned this in the book a little bit on the edge of their seats so I recommend that when you're in a job interview don't be afraid to seem enthusiastic that the hot tamale to me is far more likely to be hired, be hired than someone who's cool as a cucumber. Sit on the edge of your seat. Don't be afraid to express your enthusiasm for the place. You can look around and say, wow, what a great work environment this seems to be. And at the end, ask for the job. Come right out and say, Wow, I have loved hearing what you have said today. It makes me want this job even more. I'd love to show you what I could do. I got every editor-in-chief job, all five of them, that I went up for. And I think part of it was I really came across with a lot of enthusiasm. Such, such great advice. Thank you. Um, and I, I remember reading and being really impressed with your persuading and negotiating tips, too. Can you share one of, one of them with us? <laughs> I think I say in the book I I got some of them um, for uh, from Taylor Swift. Oh, I yes, think that great example, amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, in terms of persuading, it's so key to put yourself in the other person's shoes and just try to get inside their head and acknowledge what they're feeling. Don't get all your defenses up. And she did that when she approached. Apple about a conflict they had and she sent a letter to them via Tumblr and it was just very effective the way she she didn't get all a bitchy and aggressive she said here's the issue you need to see it from my side and the side of all the artists and it was just really effective in terms of negotiating negotiating for salary that's a 
different matter. And I think it's just so important to realize that when you go in for a new job, they often expect you to negotiate. And if you don't, you're leaving money on the table. I sat next to an HR person the other day and I said, how often are they lowballing you? And she said, almost always. So when they say, we'd love you to come on board, we're offering $70,000, take a deep breath and say, I would love to work here. I'm so honored to be offered, but I was hoping for 75000 or whatever you've determined based on your research is something they, they're most likely going to be able to pay and what the market value is and what your value is. Yeah, and I think you had a stat in there about how an extra 5000 over the course of your lifetime is actually hundreds and thousands of dollars more income, which was yes. quantified it. Yes. Yes, what, 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 one thing we sometimes tell ourselves because we're uncomfortable asking is, well, is a few thousand dollars going to make that much difference? It does make a lot of difference based on a couple of things. Your future salary is all based on that platform. And in those early years in our 20s and early 30s, that's very uh, – that's really an important base that everything else is built on. Plus, just as you said – over the course of a professional lifetime, that extra 5000 if you accepted a job for 55 instead of 50 would be worth almost $700,000 to you, factoring in normal raises and growth. That's a lot of money. Yeah, amazing. Such a good thing to remember. So I'm so happy to be sharing all this. And... Uh, let's talk about grabbing opportunities when they appear. I love that part of the book where you mentioned that uh, a few times. Yes. I, since I wrote the book, I saw a really interesting study a couple of weeks ago that was done by Hastings Law School. And the professors who did it said that the kind of glamour opportunities at, in a workplace – Things like representing the company in an industry event or running a team or handling a special project for a client. Those kind of glamour projects help you get promoted. But women and people of color are 20% less likely to be given those than other people. So you have to ask for them and you have to ask for them anyway, because your boss may not realize that you're hungry for it, that you feel ready for it. You want to go in there and say, Hey, I know such and such event is coming up last year. Bob represented the company. I would love to have the opportunity. Would you like me to put together some ideas and, and show you what I, I would do with that, some of my thinking on that. I'd I'd like to pitch for that. And just go for it. Raise your hand. And the other thing I would say is don't expect to be paid for new opportunities right away. One of the things I used to see millennials do a lot is the minute you gave them a stretch assignment, they would say, well, am I going to get more for this? Hmm. Stretch assignments don't necessarily earn you more right away, but they're what your boss uses to judge whether you can go to the next level. Got it. Excellent advice. 
Um, and you also talk a lot about risk. And I think you said even trying one risk a day, which um, is, you know, something that I, I realized that I don't do enough. And is that, is that, a, did you try to do one risk a day? And is that something you still live by? Uh, well, uh, Paulina, at uh, Casbo, if you weren't doing one risk a day, you weren't doing your job. So that was, that was a certain kind of place. Yeah. But I think risk is so important. We hear about being change agents, but we have to be risk agents too. There's a great line that I heard Ursula Burns say, who was president of Xerox. She said she loved people on her staff who actively looked for risks, who wanted to destabilize and fix things before they're broken. I'll just explain that in a minute. We often find the most wonderful times in our jobs are when everything's going great. How delicious, right? You just increase sales or customer satisfaction is up. You, you, you pulled off a project. And those, those times in our careers when everything's going well is great, too. And the tendency may be, <clears throat> excuse me, during those times to just savor it, to not fix what isn't broken, to not mess with success. But you have to be willing to destabilize, to know that when everything's going great means your competitors are looking at you and trying to do what you do. And when your career is going really well, and you're feeling happy as a clam, it often means you're not being challenged enough. So look for risks. Ask yourself, what can I take on here? What is there something missing? Is there something I could do, a problem I could fix for my department and my company that would just help score me some points and help my boss out and maybe ready you for promotion too? Yeah, no, that's great advice because like you said, when people are happy, everything's going well, you don't necessarily think, okay, what should I risk now? But um, what you're saying is you must. It's critical to do yeah, that. Yeah, it, it's hard because you really love those times when it all seems to be going well. But the problem is right after things going really well, often <laughs> it's a period where your energy starts to sag because you're not challenged. And it's almost harder sometimes to go after something new when you're in that stage. One great example, a young woman wrote me not long ago saying that she heard me mention the importance of trying to find stuff and ask what's missing if, you're, if, if your boss isn't giving it, you anything. And she was a junior person in a PR department at a company, and she said she realized they had no crisis manual at all for how to deal with stuff like, well, we, we see companies dealing with them, like ABC dealing with Roseanne uh, texting something terrible, and they had to make a decision right away. So she came up with, an idea to do a crisis manual and she put together a proposal for it and they were, Oh my God, this is fabulous. So she wrote the crisis manual using input from everybody. And she did a few more things like that. And she said within no time she was promoted up a level because of these things. So she, she looked for what was missing, what could be fixed, a problem that could be solved. And, and she took a, a bit of a risk to raise her hand for it. Yeah, definitely. Another chapter that really moved me was the chapter on worrying and how sometimes, a lot of times, worrying will hold women back. 
um, and how worrying can sabotage careers. Can you give us a few thoughts on what you've seen throughout your career and maybe tips on how to, how to, you know, some people who worry too much, they're never going to get rid of it, but how to keep it at bay. Yes. That actually was an interesting chapter for me to write because I talked to a couple of people who gave me information that I was hearing for the first time. Women, according to some experts, tend to worry more, ruminate more. They walk out of, me of a meeting going, oh my gosh, I blew it. Where the guy walks out thinking, hey, you know, tomorrow's another day. And the more you worry, the more it becomes a habit. And you may not be able to totally stop your tendency to worry, but if you try to shut it down, it doesn't get out of hand as much. But the other fascinating, fascinating thing that I discovered through a woman named Nancy Parsons who's done some research on this is that when the going gets tough, women tend to behave certain ways when they're worrying. If they're in any kind of leadership role, they start to study more, get quiet, analyze, and, and try to put their nose to the grindstone and figure it out. Where men have a tendency to come forward, to ask for resources, to make fast decisions and not overstudy. And the problem is when you're doing what she calls a, a female approach, you're not read as having leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. So it's really important not to let them see you sweat. If something scares you, ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen when something like this has happened in the past? How have I handled it? How will I handle it this time? And then come forward, engage, talk about what you're going to do, make fast decisions, but smart decisions, and don't crawl under a rock and try to figure it out. So you seem like someone who's extremely disciplined and organized. Um, I was wondering if you have any tips for managing goals and your just time management for personal. Well, I have to confess, I was terrible in terms of organizing myself in my 20s. I, I was like a terminal procrastinator. And one of the ways I dealt with it was I was a feature writer at the time at Glamour Magazine, and I... I pitched a couple of ideas on time management and interviewed some top experts because I figured, okay, I'm going to be talking to the pros. I'm going to learn how to deal with it. And part of what I do is try to make a schedule every day and stick with it. If I'm going to write, I try to be at my desk at 8.30 and write to a certain hour before lunch and not allow myself to be you know, distracted, turn off email. One of the best advice, pieces of advice, advice I've ever gotten was from a woman who I had come in once and helped me with some time management at, at Cosmo. Her name is Julia Morgenstern, and she is a big believer in that you only look at email four or five times a day. You get up. Uh, if, if you feel that things happen in the evening and you want to look at it first thing, fine, or maybe you don't look at it to 10 o'clock. But you look at you don't keep going back and forth because that sucks up so much time. And probably the, one of the best things I ever learned was from a guy who who had a strategy he called slice the salami. His belief was that we don't take on 
certain tasks that we want to do and that are good for us to do because we make them too big. We make them daunting. And he was a big believer that you just slice everything into a small enough section that it becomes impossible not to do. And so in the beginning, when I was first writing my murder mysteries, I wrote the first several months just 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And that that I could do. And then it gradually expanded. So I had to really teach myself some time management strategies. Really great tips. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how your upbringing influenced, do you think, the path that you, you ended up on? Oh, gosh. No one's ever asked me exactly that question. I grew up in Glens Falls, New York, and my mom and dad were very supportive parents and we didn't have much money, but my parents were educated and they saw my interest in writing early on. And my mom bought me something called a typewriter, which (laughs) back then is what we wrote with. And she, she helped me when I wanted to put out a little magazine in my, in my school. She helped me get it printed and she was just really great that way. Though the one time I had to buck them, my parents wanted me to go to a college where I could get a teaching certificate because they wanted me to have something to fall back on. And I knew that if I did that, I might never have the nerve to go to New York City. So I picked a school that didn't have have a teaching (laughs) education program. And I know that kind of threw him a little bit of a curveball, but I figured this way I'll never have anything to fall back on other than being a content creator. And I I just um, wanted from the time I was young to come to New York City. I, I memorized a map of Manhattan when I was younger, though the big thing for me was how do I get here and that's why winning the glamour contest made all the difference because this was before internships were common and I had no clue how do, how do I come here love that story and do you think the gutsiness um, was something you had from a young age or is it something you developed over time I think I was naturally pretty gutsy when I was younger but particularly as a baby boomer boy society really tamped it down. I remember my uncle calling me, taking me aside once after I had this race with this young kid on my block. I was probably seven years old. And he pulled me aside and he said, Cater, never win a race against your future husband. Mm -hmm. Meaning always let the guy win. And those were the messages. There were so many of them that were translated to women then. And so by the time I was in my 20s, I I found a lot of good girl tendencies emerging. You know, some of them were probably there from the time I was younger, but I I found a lot of the gutsy instincts had been tamped down by things I picked up and also just by the anxiety that came from living in New York City and living in a terrible little apartment with mice my first couple of years here and all those things can affect you. And so that's why it's so important to sit back sometimes and just ask yourself, am I talking myself out of things that I want? Am I listening to things other people have put 
put in my head, sort of the fake news of people saying, well, you're not good with numbers or you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. There's a lot of messages that get in there. And we think we're going with our guts, but we're really operating from this fake news that's been in there. Absolutely. That's why I'm so excited to be sharing um, your book and talking about it and just encouraging women to think, am I going, like you said, bold enough, big enough, badass enough? What's the fourth B? (laughs) Could it be better? bigger, bolder, or more badass. And it's such a simple formula, but I think you could apply it to so much and it just allows you to go, you know what? I could go out a little farther with this and it's going to make a difference. Yeah. And what I think is so important because, you know, you built your career on solid business returns. You look at the data. It's not just, you know, um, some people like we talked, speakers will go out there and they don't have the accomplishments to back it up, but it's based on real business success. I hear you. I think that one thing I worry about on the speaker circuit, there are speakers out there who maybe they've worked in sales for a few years and they love the idea of speaking and then they become experts Mm -hmm. and they aren't necessarily basing what they're saying on having worked in companies, seen some of the real challenges that are faced and what I try to do when I speak is share strategies that really came from a, running a number one brand and working my, my way up in a competitive field and making sure women have information that's based on reality. Thank you. That's precisely what I was hoping um, to, to articulate with why I think your book was so, is so excellent. Um, before we end, can you tell us about your house in Uruguay and, and how that came to be? Because I'm just curious. Well, that's a good strategy, too. I am a big believer in something that I heard a management guru say once. You've got to drain the swamp as you slay the alligators, meaning you've got to do the day-to-day, which is the slaying of the alligators. But you've also got to think of the big picture, picture which is the draining of the swamp. And I heard this guy say this when I was running the business magazine for women, but I didn't really put that strategy into full play until I was at Cosmo. And it made a huge difference for me because I spent an hour every single week thinking about the big picture and what I was going to do with the magazine. But it was only later that I realized, you know, this is good to do with our personal lives too. Step back, ask yourself, what more do I want? Is there some girlhood dream I put aside? And it was in one of those conversations that I had with myself that that eventually I took to my husband that we decided we would love at some point to live outside the United States, particularly in the winter, because we both hate winters. And I grew up far up in New York State. and It was always so cold. So we had this idea in the back of our head. So it was really easy as we traveled around South America with our kids and then when they were grown and we traveled alone to always be thinking, hey, is that place out there? And then one day we saw it in Uruguay. Some friends of ours lived there too and we were overlapping with them on vacation and we saw this place. It was near where they lived and we just thought this would be fantastic. So we bought it the next day That was nine years ago, and we spend our winters there, and our kids come down. 
on holiday, and it's it's just been absolutely fantastic. But I think it's really helpful if you plant those seeds. If you think think on those um, think you know that draining of the swamp moments, because life goes so fast, and you want to plant those seeds so you act on them. Really great advice. Um, I'm so grateful to you for being on this show, and there's so much in here in this in our conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You asked just fabulous questions. Uh, you should have been working for me at Cosmo. Gosh, <laughs> thank you. I wish. <laughs> that made my day. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hello, and thanks for listening. If you have any ideas for future shows or feedback for us, you can reach us at podcast at IWantHerJob.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend, and we would be very grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. We will be back soon with a new show. Thanks for listening.